Hello and welcome to the Arab Digest podcast. I'm William Law, editor of the Digest, and I thank you for listening. My guest today is Sami Hamdi, editor-in-chief of the International Interest. Our conversation focuses on Turkey in the Middle East and North Africa. President Erdogan has embarked on a campaign of mean offense spending, and Sami is here to help sort out what is behind it all. Welcome back to the podcast, Sami. Thank you for having me again, Bill. Now, President Erdogan arrived in Abu Dhabi on Monday and a meeting with Crown Prince Mohammed bin Zayed. The mood music was very positive. The president called his visit the beginning of a new era and MBZ talked about cooperation to confront a number of common challenges. We'll get to those challenges in a moment, but give us your thoughts on the meeting, how significant it is and what it means for both uh, countries. I think it's very significant. I think it heralds the end of the Arab Spring period as far as policymakers are concerned and opening a new chapter that looks very similar to the status quo before the Arab Spring. Both parties are, 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 are tired, although one is more definitely more tired than the other. The key issues that were present, such as the idea of the Muslim Brotherhood, such as Turkey's influence in the region. For Mohammed bin Zayed, he believes that the Muslim Brotherhood are no longer a threat. There's no longer a lightning rod or rather a means by which Turkey is able to channel its influence into any potent political power in the manner it might have done had Morsi remained in power in Egypt or had the Nahva remained dominant in Tunisia or even the Islamists remained dominant in Libya. For Mohammed bin Zayed, it's mission accomplished. He set out in 2012 in order to crush the democratic wave, in order to suppress the Arab Spring, Erdogan sought to lend his weight to the Arab Spring and to the democratic processes, albeit for his own reasons. And in this uh, clash of wills, in this duel, Bin Zayed believes that he's come out on top. And now there is a golden opportunity presented for the UAE in this marked shift that we're seeing in Turkey, this sort of uh, policy of fortifying Turkey itself, trying to deal with the economy, trying to cement gains that have been made, trying to embark on a policy of damage limitation in the face of pressures from the US, from Russia, from the EU and the like. The UAE believes that the increasing pragmatism of Erdogan and indeed his, the need for him uh, to survive or Erdogan's politics of survival means that Bin Zayed now has an opportunity to step in and try to win Turkey over, to win Ankara over. Bin Zayed is aware that there are tensions between Qatar and Turkey with regards to the financial assistance that Qatar provides Turkey. Bin Zayed believes that in the long term, he might even be able to supplant uh, Qatar as a result of firstly, the absence of any issues of difference uh, by virtue of opening a new chapter from the Arab Spring, but also given that Erdogan's immediate and short-term and medium-term needs are economic and the UAE believes that its ties with Israel, its influence in Washington, its influence in Europe, its financial firepower, are exactly what Erdogan is looking for, what Erdogan needs, and it is willing to deploy this for Erdogan, provided Erdogan continues on this nationalist, pragmatic trend that we're seeing that in the long term might even undermine Turkish soft power in the region. You know, that's interesting uh, because Erdogan was seen as the really the hero of political Islam and Mohammed bin Zayed as, as, as its foe. And what you're saying is now, what, these two have put aside any ideological differences. Uh, is it a case of Erdogan almost suing for peace on this front? 
I know that the Turkish uh, media machine is asserting that this is a victory for Turkey and that Bin Zayed is the one who has backed down. But let's take a step back, Bill, and let's look at the region as it is at the moment. We see that Ennahda are on the ropes in Tunisia and Qais Saeed is cementing his coup and there's no real international opposition to it. Qais Saeed is in Brussels at the time of the recording of this. He's just arrived in Brussels to attend the EU-African Union summit and he's portraying this as a diplomatic victory for him after, being, after it was suggested he was isolated. In Libya, we see now that there is talks between Egypt, Turkey, including the UAE as well, with regards to trying to form another government. Turkey believes it doesn't matter who's in power in Tripoli, provided they respect the agreements. But certainly we see that Haftan and Aguila Saleh are in the ascendancy and that the US is generally apathetic and not necessarily particularly interested in fulfilling any democratic transition that might benefit the Islamists. In Sudan, we see that Turkey's long-term allies, the Islamists, are no longer in power in Sudan. Instead, we see that the US policy is focused on ensuring the Islamists do not come to power. And that's one of the reasons that why Burhan uh, was able to navigate his coup in that when he did his coup, he released the Islamists from prison, almost saying to Washington, either you let me continue in power or I swear by God, I will bring these people back to power. And Washington agreed on an extended transition period that allows Burhan to stay in power. If we're looking in Egypt, Sisi is sorted, Sisi is uh, cementing his power, and Turkey has even offered a number of concessions, including shutting down uh, opposition uh, channels, or rather opposition activity, let's not say channels, uh, ordering them not only to be quiet on the channels, but also to be quiet on social media. And you'll remember Mu'taz Matar, one of the most famous of the Egyptian opposition uh, presenters, essentially presenting a YouTube video where he's in London and he says, I looked at the map of the Middle East and I realized there's nowhere else for me to go. And so I've decided to vacate the Middle East entirely. In other words, we see that if you're Mohammed bin Zayed, the region looks good for you. Authoritarianism is back. Muslim Brotherhood are no longer a threat. And if you're looking at it from Ankara, your allies have lost in nearly every single one of these arenas to the allies of the UAE. The difference, I think, is that Mohammed bin Zayed is a pragmatic individual. Bin Zayed does not believe in complete defeats or complete victories. What bin Zayed believes is that the needs of a state trump any ideological barriers, that even if Erdogan has any convictions, the economy, the domestic situation ties Erdogan up. In other words, he's able to build a relationship that can ignore the ideological aspects, provided those ideological aspects do not become potent. And the ideological aspects are no longer potent in terms of Turkey's ability to assert such an ideology in the region. Those are all good points, Sami. And there's also one final point that sometimes I believe is not necessarily appreciated. The more Erdogan moves towards nationalism, remember why Turkey is strong in the region in terms of its soft power. It's not because it is a formidable force. It is because Erdogan speaks in a language that resonates with the region, i.e. this Islamic language. The more Erdogan moves to nationalism, the more Bin Zayed becomes comfortable. The more Turkey becomes insular and focuses uniquely on Turkish interests or Turkish uh, 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 PR or Turkish electorate, the more Bin Zayed and Bin Salman are happy. Because as we saw with Abdul Khaliq Abdullah, one, a former UAE advisor, when he wrote on Twitter, he essentially goaded the uh, Turkey's allies saying, look at your sultan, he's pulled the rug from underneath you. And now he is having sitting down with the UAE and negotiating with them. And the reality is that there is this sense that as a result of the pressures that are on Turkey, Erdogan has shifted to greater pragmatism, certainly more insular. But of course, I should caveat this with one particular point, uh, Bill, which is that while it is true that the way I put it makes it sound very cruel and Machiavellian and dark, 
the reality is Erdogan does have legitimate reasons for which to sort of retreat and focus on the interior of Turkey or inside Turkey. And that is that for all of the criticism of Turkey's democracy and democratic practices, it is still a government that is dictated based on the will of the electorate in that there is a possibility he will lose seats in the election. In other words, democracy is still alive in Turkey and Erdogan is aware of this and knows that the people who will decide his future at the end of the day are not the Arabs that he's been wooing with the likes of Erdogan and Sultan Abdul Hamid series and Barbarossa series and with his uh, speeches against Macron's Islamophobia or the like. But instead, it is the Turkish electorate which is not interested in foreign policy and interested entirely in the domestic economy. Mm, indeed, indeed. But, but let me let me ask you about uh, MBZ's statement that uh, you know we have common challenges that we can face together. What, what are these common challenges then? I think Ben Zaid is more referring now to this idea that given that Turkey's policy has shifted now towards damage limitation, or if we put it in a more positive light, preserving the gains that it has made, such as military bases in Libya and the like. I think when Ben Zaid talks about the challenges, he's referring more to the chaos that is in the region. This idea that now it is accepted that the chaos affects all of us, it affects UAE, it affects Turkey, it affects everybody. And now we are going to work together to bring about the status quo or a stability in which everybody respects the politics of each other, everybody respects the integrity of each other. We come back to the status quo where Turkey doesn't get involved in the affairs of the UAE, UAE doesn't get involved in the affairs of Turkey. Essentially what Bin Zayed is saying is that now that the region is sort of, there's an agreement that there should be a return to stability and the status quo, there are challenges now to achieve that stability and status quo. There's no longer necessarily the antagonism, or that's what Bin Zayed is trying to allude to. There's no longer the focus on antagonism, but rather the focus on licking each other's wounds, on coming to some sort of framework and agreement whereby Erdogan is able to focus domestically on his own issues. Bin Zayed can focus on his uh, difficult relationship with Bin Salman and with Sisi and with these other states. This idea that now we are focused on security challenges, Ethiopia, we are focused on security challenges in Libya. And uh, Abdul Khaliq Abdullah, again, I refer to him, he's worth following on Twitter. Abdul Khaliq Abdullah even alluded to in that the relationship may even expand in that we're talking about it from an economic perspective, but he argues that it's going to transcend into a security and military uh, partnership. And the reality is that there is a sense amongst the UAE, while the Turks remain slightly suspicious, given that there is this awkward uh, stance in that they are the ones primarily chasing the reconciliation, but there is a sense in the UAE that they could potentially supplant Qatar in their relationship with Turkey, and that their relationship with Turkey, Turkey's defense uh, advancements and the like, that this relationship could really become solid and solidify into something that brings about a lasting, uh, I won't say stability, because Ibn Khaldun says that oppression leads to the destruction of civilization. There's no stability in oppression. But uh, I, I will say that it will have a lasting impact uh, this partnership on the region and on a range of issues. I think that's what Bin Zaid is alluding to. Mm. And you've already uh, spoken about what has caused Erdogan to move towards uh, uh, MBZ, and that is the economic crisis, of massive inflation. We're seeing protests in the streets. And as you said, Erdogan is vulnerable. There is, albeit perhaps not what we experience in the West, but there is a democratic process that could hurt him. I think where I will be careful with my words is this idea that Erdogan is 
in, in that Turkey is vulnerable, in that t- Turkey is not vulnerable. When you look at Turkey today, Turkey is still a powerhouse in the region. It's still a powerhouse in Libya. It's the reason why Bashar is unable to get rid of Idbeba because Turkey is the power on the ground there that is able to dictate. In Somalia, Turkey is, is a power. It's building its relations with Ethiopia. Turkey is still getting stronger in Central Asia. Turkey has, still has uh, expansive uh, soft power. I think that the focus here is on Erdogan personally, Erdogan specifically. This idea that Erdogan believes that everything he has achieved now is on the line as a result of the democratic elections, as a result of the democracy that many people essentially are trying to say no longer exists in Turkey or doesn't exist to the same extent. The reality is that for Erdogan, it's still very much alive. And this is why uh, there is all all, all these risks that are taking place. But there's also a sense from Erdogan in that there is real genuine antagonism internationally towards him and towards the ideas or symbolism that he represents. For all of Turkey's strategic value and validity, he hasn't been able to make any headway in Washington. He hasn't been able to make any headway with the EU. There's a reluctant admission that Turkey is important, but there is also this sense in Washington, the EU, that everything should be done to remove Erdogan and bring somebody else in his place. In other words, there's a sense that Erdogan no longer has as much as many friends as he used to have. And there is also a sense, and I will be brutally honest, in that there's a sense amongst Erdogan and indeed those around him, that this is an unfair situation. That when you look at the reasons for the antagonism, Erdogan has legitimate reasons to be angry with the EU over numerous stances with regards to Syria, with regards to uh, the the, the popularly touted uh, attempted coup in Turkey, whether it's with regards to the migration crisis, whether it's regards to unnecessary antagonism with regards to the economy. Erdogan feels hard done. And this is why what we see now is that we see an Erdogan who believes that while Turkey is strong and while the reality is he is strong, he is increasingly isolated. And there are now more immediate priorities and and there needs to be a more immediate shift to focus on domestic uh, issues. For the UAE, it's sort of it's not that they've defeated Turkey. Turkey is not defeated. But rather for the UAE, what it is, is that if Erdogan now is turning towards an, an insular policy, or, not, or let's say he's turning towards domestic issues and in deploying a more nationalist rhetoric, the UAE, Bin Zayed, is not a knee-jerk reaction like Mohammed bin Salman or the, or the others. Bin Zayed believes that everything should be done to push Erdogan further to that domestic front and use that weakness to develop a relationship with him to ensure that they can use that nationalist rhetoric and use that pragmatism of Erdogan to utterly obliterate Erdogan's image in the region as this Muslim leader, as this person who resonates with the region. Because the crux of the UAE's problem with Turkey is not that Turkey is necessarily strong, but that Turkey influences the very populations that the UAE wants to control. Erdogan influences the very populations that the UAE is seeking to assert its dominance over. That is the crux of the issue. If Erdogan can be pushed back into a nationalist rhetoric a nationalist Turkish identity, then Mohammed bin Zayed believes it doesn't matter how strong Turkey will get, the perception of Turkey in the Arab world, in the Muslim world will change, and Turkey therefore will not be able to establish roots in the manner that it has in North Africa or in West Africa or in other places, in the manner that it has done so successfully under Erdogan. But let me ask you, uh, Sami, with uh, those elections coming up uh, next year, June 2023, how vulnerable is Erdogan uh, domestically? I don't think Erdogan is necessarily as vulnerable as people think. I think there is a really good Financial Times article in which the final paragraph, they ask a local pollster who's, who tends to be quite reliable, 
who made a very interesting statement in that he said that anger towards Erdogan in Turkey does not mean support for the opposition, in that there is this sense that for all of Erdogan's flaws, the opposition are not any better. And it's important to highlight that one of the reasons Erdogan has been able to consistently win elections is that whereas in, the, in his early years he had the message of hope, the message of fear is still very powerful in Turkey. This idea that if we allow the CHP back in power, we go back to those very repressive laws, repressive policies. We go back to the days of military coups uh, and the like. This idea that we cannot allow the other people in power, so we tolerate a bad choice that is Erdogan. This is a very powerful factor uh, in Turkey. And this is why I think the question is not whether Erdogan will win or lose. I actually think he is more, it's more likely that he will win. But rather, by how much will he win? Will he still be able to form a government with two parties, i.e. the AK party, his party, and the MHP, which are the nationalist uh, party? Or will he need to find a third party? Because if he needs a third party, the reality is when you look at the spectrum, there's no viable third partner. And all of a sudden, you have a very difficult uh, uh, political situation on your hand that becomes very difficult for Erdogan. So I think that when we talk about Erdogan being vulnerable, I think we have to talk about it in a relative sense. This idea that Erdogan is powerful enough that the UAE wants to reconcile with him and the UAE rather, or let's put it, the UAE accepts reconciliation with him, but is vulnerable enough that the, 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 the bin Salman and Sisi and Biden and the like are hoping that he will be so badly damaged in the elections that he can no longer assert himself in the manner that he's done in the past. Mm. I want you, you've touched on, on Libya a little bit. And of course, Turkey was instrumental in turning the tide of battle against uh, Khalifa Haftar, who was supported by the UAE very strongly. But, but uh, let's look at Tunisia and uh, Kais Saeed's soft coup. Now, it would seem that uh, Ankara has abandoned Ednada, the, uh, the Islamist party, uh, and, and walked away from that party that represented political Islam, represented a fragile uh, democracy, was in power for some time. What's going on there? Is this just straight abandonment? I think it's a bit more complex than that. For Turkey's relationship with the Islamists, one, you have to remember that Islamists still defend Erdogan very ferociously as well. While privately, they will say that, you know, that it's a, it's a difficult situation and Istanbul is no longer necessarily as friendly as it once was. They're publicly, they are asserting that Erdogan is under pressure. It's understandable. We defend him. They are arguing that Bin Zayed sitting with Erdogan is a defeat for UAE and a victory for Turkey. Although how many people actually believe this is, is a different question. But rather, there is this sense for Turkey in that we have immediate problems that don't allow us to really propel the Islamists to power. We have real issues domestically. We are surrounded by Russia, EU, Biden, uh, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, in the Mediterranean, by Israel and the like. We've paid a heavy price for supporting you. We can no longer do so. So amicably, we respectfully say to you, we can no longer offer you the support that you want. I think this is the message Turkey has given to the Muslim Brotherhood, rather than just pulling the rug from underneath them. The sense that we regret the situation as it is now, it's not that we want to abandon you, it's that we have no choice but to focus on our immediate national interest uh, priorities. And that's what some of the, the new age Turkish analysts are arguing this idea that now Turkey should focus on itself, not focus on this rather wider pan-Islamist politics that Erdogan used to uh, pursue. Having said that, this doesn't mean in, in different crisis situations, we see different uh, 
uh, degrees of relationship with Turkey. While Turkey still supports the Islamists in Libya, it's willing to engage nowadays with Aguila Saleh. It's willing to engage with Haftar in the East. There is this sort of pragmatism, but it's also worth noting that in Libya, the Islamists themselves have been having indirect channels with Haftar in order to get rid of the Prime Minister Dbeiba. In other words, the domestic dynamics, without going into too much detail, the domestic dynamics in Libya have afforded an opportunity for Turkey to be able to be more pragmatic in its approach with regards to Libya. But I think that when it comes to their relationship with the Islamists, I think it's more complex than that they've abandoned them. They've certainly uh, begun to limit their support for the Islamists. Islamists are no longer a key part of their foreign policy. There is a desire now to shore up relations with Sisi, with bin Salman, who's still giving them the cold shoulder, uh, with the UAE, with these powers. That there, that there is this sense that, that, that Turkey believes or is sending the message, I'm not as strong as I once was. I have immediate priorities to tackle. And this is why there is a, a number of Saudi journalists, there are a number of Saudi journalists writing in Saudi newspapers saying that Erdogan is doing all of this because he's temporarily vulnerable. And if he wins the elections and becomes strong again, we will see a return to the previous policies, antagonistic policies that we saw in the past. This is very much a possibility. This is something perhaps the Islamists might be gambling on. However, the extent to which that is reflected in Turkish rhetoric, or even when you speak to Turkish analysts, I think leaves room for the UAE to legitimately believe that this is not a temporary phase. And rather, this is a new era in which Turkey becomes a more pragmatic state. Uh, Erdogan focuses internally on survival mode. UAE becomes a prime partner uh, of uh, Turkey. And the ramifications that has on the region are huge, especially on those who still believe somewhat in the principles of the Arab Spring. Mm-hmm. Yeah, now you've mentioned Saudi Arabia and uh, MBS, Mohammed bin Salman, cold shouldering. Erdogan, of course, there was that situation with the killing of the journalist Jamal Hashoji in the consulate in Istanbul. And, and certainly the Turks made it excruciatingly embarrassing for Mohammed bin Salman. But what, what is the relationship there now? And, and how uneasy would Mohammed bin Salman be with this new rapprochement between Turkey and the UAE? I think it's worth remembering that bin Salman reconciled with Qatar without consulting the UAE. And he dragged the UAE kicking and screaming into a reconciliation that Abu Dhabi didn't want any part of. I think the reason I mention that is that when UAE are reconciling with Turkey, you there is a sense, uh, I mean, no, Saudis aren't open about it, neither are the UAE, but there is a sense that the UAE is sort of taking a jab at Saudi Arabia as well, in that if you don't consult me, I don't have to necessarily consult you uh, on these issues. And we've seen clashes over the past year with regards to OPEC. Uh, but I think that if you're Mohammed bin Salman, I think things look like they're really improving at a rapid rate. Biden is sending delegation after delegation, imploring you to raise production and bring oil prices down. So Bin Salman suddenly finds that he now has the power to squeeze an individual who humiliated him publicly and promised to make him a pariah. And now Bin Salman is not responding to Biden in the manner that Washington hopes. And Biden is sending more delegations to say, listen, really, you need to uh, uh, lower the oil price. Uh, Bin Salman has seen Macron give him a visit, a high profile visit, ending this idea of him being internationally isolated. And now he's seeing Erdogan say at a uh, conference or an expo, I can't remember where it was, where he says that I will speak to Mohammed bin Salman and try to get him to lift the Saudi boycott. This idea that Erdogan 
is the one who is going to say to Muhammad bin Salman, come on, let's sit down, let's reconcile, let's let bygones be bygones. It was the Turkish spokesman Ibrahim Kalin who came and said, suddenly we respect the, the judiciary of Saudi Arabia and we accept their decision with regards to the Khashoggi murder. This idea that they are really trying to push for reconciliation with Saudi Arabia. So if you're Mohammed bin Salman, those who once squeezed you, who really set the fire underneath you, who made you jump and dance to their own tune, who really uh, shook your very foundations and your power, both of the key elements in that, Turkey and the US, are now chasing you for something only you can offer. And this is why I think that for bin Salman, it's personal. He believes that there's no rush to reconcile with Turkey. Let's wait and see after the elections. Let's hope Erdogan loses the elections. If he loses, then Turkey will go back towards a more insular policy. That works for me, given that Erdogan's popularity is based on the Islamic identity and bin Salman is pursuing a secular identity. We saw the way that he's changed some of Saudi Arabia's history, changing the date of the foundation of the kingdom from 1744 to 1727 to remove the years in which Muhammad bin Abdul Wahab, the cleric, played a major role. Bin Salman believes that Erdogan is on the ropes and that there's no rush necessarily to reconcile with him. I think when Bin Salman looks at the UAE, I think there might be a belief uh, in Cairo and the Riyadh that the UAE is not enough to rescue uh, Erdogan and that in the broader scheme of things, the UAE is still very much on board uh, with their ideologies. I do think Turks are optimistic about the idea of reconciling with Saudi Arabia. Bin Salman may do so, but it's important to highlight that the emphasis of reconciliation with Saudi Arabia is built on economic considerations. It's about getting Saudis to invest again, getting Saudis to buy Turkish goods again, getting them to stop the boycott. And it's this economic uh, drive that rather encourages Saudi Arabia to dig its heels and see just how much they can make Erdogan squirm. Mm, interesting. Let me let me ask you now just about Syria and the situation there, where the Turks have uh, they've hit the PKK, they've uh, they've hit the YPG, which of course is part of the uh, um, SDF, backed by the Americans. Um, what what is the situation with the Kurds, and 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 how concerned does Erdogan need to be about them? I think that the idea of the Kurds establishing an autonomous state is still very much possible if the situation stays the way it is. This idea that if the constitutional uh, committee that is being negotiated by the UN, I think there's a seventh round of meetings that is due in March or, or, or April, if I'm not mistaken. There is this idea that a settlement in Syria might be reached in which the Kurds get an autonomous region similar to the autonomous Kurdish region in Iraq. And that would be a disaster for Turkey, which is keen to ensure that the Kurdish groups do not establish any framework by which they might be able to pursue independence uh, later. And the reality is that this remains a bone of contention between Turkey and the US. Having said that, there are signs recently that perhaps some sort of deal has been negotiated between Russia and Turkey. Again, these are signs, not confirmed reports. But we know that uh, HTS in Idlib has been asking foreign fighters to leave, which is one of the uh, demands that Assad and Russia have been making of Turkey this idea that Turkey should demand of the groups that are in Idlib that foreign fighters should leave, which suggests if Turkey is involved, there's no evidence Turkey is involved, or I haven't seen anything, but suggests that uh, this condition now is sort of on its way to being sort of fulfilled, suggesting that perhaps there are some talks going on, negotiations in which a power sharing arrangement might be made between Turkey, Russia, Iran, with regards to uh, Syria. We know that Assad now is looking to move on from the war, he's conducted the uh, elections between quotation marks in which he won 90 something percent. 
in order to try to uh, give a show of ending the idea of the war. But I think with regards to Turkey, uh, Erdogan's policy now is about shelving contentious issues, trying to end the antagonism with the UAE, with Egypt, with Saudi, with the East Med, with Syria, trying to find some way to douse or put out some of those fires so that he can focus internally, domestically, regain his strength, lick his wounds, and also sort out the, his legacy. You have to remember also in Turkey domestically, there's a very strange phenomenon in that you have this new generation of Turkish analysts who are sort of trying to rewrite Erdogan's history as not one of a resurgence of an Islamic identity, but rather a sort of neo-nationalist identity that is counter to what Erdogan, Erbakan, and the others preached in 1990s and in the 1980s on their road to power. This idea that Erdogan now is seeking to uh, establish his legacy in Turkey, sort of shore things up domestically, before perhaps another bout internationally in really asserting Turkish power. The point I should make here is this, Bill, and I, and I promise to make it brief, is this idea that while Turkey is making concessions, this doesn't mean Turkey is weak. While Turkey is making concessions, this doesn't mean that Turkey is losing. Rather, Turkey's influence in the areas in which it's involved in is set. It's, it's, it's firmly rooted, whether that's Algeria, West Africa, Libya, Syria, or the like. Turkey is not going anywhere in these places. What Erdogan is doing is fortifying these gains, is entrenching these gains because it's increasingly looking like he doesn't have the power to resist the counterattack that is taking place to push back these gains. And this is why in the broader picture, Turks might be justified in arguing that it's not necessarily a defeat, but rather these concessions in the broader picture affirm and confirm Turkey's status as a regional powerhouse. And that is not diminished in any way whatsoever by these reconciliations. And I think that's a strong argument that can be backed up by the realities on the ground, even if perhaps it does cause consternation and concern amongst those who sympathize with Erdogan. Sami, as ever, fascinating to talk to you. And I thank you so much. Thank you, Bill. Appreciate it. You've been listening to the Arab Digest podcast. My guest today was Sami Hamdi, Editor-in-Chief of the International Interest. In addition to our podcast, which I'm very pleased to say have a rapidly growing global audience, the Arab Digest newsletter features the very best of MENA analysts. If you'd like a free trial to the newsletter, simply go to arabdigest.org. And if you enjoy what you find and want to join the club after your trial period has ended, we're offering special rates to students, academics, and retirees. And subscriptions are now available to university libraries. Check it out on arabdigest.org and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm William Law, editor of the Arab Digest, essential reading from independent sources.